Hello and welcome to the revolution. Welcome to the Liberty Hour of Inform Life Radio brought to you by Informed Choice Washington. And that means brought to you by you because we need you to help support Informed Choice Washington so we can keep free speech on the air, medical free speech on the air, and bring you the information that we think is really important for you to make informed decisions in your life. Um, this, uh, this hour it, right now is streaming in a couple of places. You can go hear it at KKNW, um, or you can listen on Twitter. You might be here at Informed uh, Choice Wa Twitter space, X space. I can't get used to saying X space. It doesn't make into a verb. You can't, if you X somebody, it sounds like you're offing them. I don't know. It just, I just don't like that X. <laughs> anyway, here we are. Um, so we've got a great hour uh, lined up for you. Um, remember, we're not we're not giving you legal or medical or any of that sort of advice. We're just here to be giving you conversation, information, resources so you can make informed decisions in your life. Um, and our, our guest today is Murray Sabrin. He's a Ph.D. in economic geography. I thought that was interesting. I'm going to go ahead and bring him on. Right There you are. Hello. May I call you Murray? <laughs> Absolutely. That's what my wife calls me. So All right. Well, thank you. So Murray, I'll say it again, Sabrin, S-A-B-R-I-N for folks who want to look you up, but I'll be calling you Murray. Um, I just want to give a few uh, notes that I took about when I was looking you up. And, and so your parents were Holocaust survivors and you moved to the United States with your family when you were just two years old. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't remember that, but I do remember the uh, early <laughs> days in, in lower Manhattan. Wow. Yeah. Um, so when you were a little kid, though, what drew you to economics? I mean, it, it, go ahead. Well, it's, it's, I think it's 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 an interesting journey that I took. And that's explained in my memoir that I uh, was published exactly a year ago, November 22nd last year, from Immigrant to Public Intellectual and American Story. Hmm. And uh, I originally was going to write a, a, a book about my first political campaign in 1997 as the Libertarian Party candidate for governor. And mm -hmm. then when I spoke to Michael Harrison of Talkers Magazine, who also has a publishing arm, Talkers Publisher, he said, Murray, you have a more interesting story than just your uh, political campaign. So I sat down and wrote it um, the summer of 22. Uh, and uh, it was published in, in the fall. And it, it, it describes my journey. So let me give you a little background about my okay. journey. I grew up in New York City, uh, went to the New York City public schools. I was fortunate enough to uh, be accepted to the Bronx High School of Science, which at, I think at that time was the premier public high school academically in the country. It was a very uh, tough entrance exam. And I was surprised I got in and not, none of my classmates got in except one other student. And we had a, a class of 35 students in my homeroom class. And, I, and there were a lot of smart kids in, in that homeroom. And I said, boy, am I fortunate that I got accepted and uh, they unfortunately did not. Mm. But uh, 
going to Bronx High School of Science was almost like being in college. The, the teachers had PhDs, most of them had. They were just well-versed in every subject matter. And the, many of them had been around for 30, 40 years. So they were in their 50s and 60s. And uh, I remember one cl uh, Spanish class, uh, the teacher uh, found the name of a student. He said, I had your mother as a student. So, Oh, good heavens. <laughs> yeah. uh, it would be an interesting story. I just spoke to a former student of mine from Ramapo College, where I started teaching in 1985, and he's now semi-retired. So you know you're getting old when you have your <laughs> college uh, students are semi-retired. And uh, and I uh, so let me just continue. And uh, I was just interested in social studies. I thought that was a fascinating subject: current events, history, geography, and um, and then in 1959, when I was bar mitzvahed, uh, one of the How, couples. I'll I want to inter. I apologize for interrupting, but we're getting a little bit of noise from your mic, and so I'm not sure where it is where you are. So, um, oh, let me just take this. The papers up ahead on, on my laptop. Can oh, I, I think that was that was what was doing it. Okay, Probably. continue. Yeah. Thank anyway, you. I got this wonderful gift from um, this couple that, that came late to my bar mitzvah, which was held in our apartment. Though my parents didn't have much money, so we had a very uh, very inexpensive. Uh, reception after the ceremony in the morning and they gave me a world atlas mm. and i just uh, uh, treasured that book because it just allowed me to explore the world without having to go to all these countries and you get to see all the names of the countries the capitals the rivers and it just fascinated me that there was a whole world out there and here we are living in uh, in new york city and uh, one of the goals i had to uh, after we got married uh, in 1968 was to travel and we traveled extensively. Mm -hmm. So I, so I got interested in social studies. Uh, and uh, when I was a junior in high school, I decided to become a social studies teacher when all the students around me were either going to law school or wanted to be lawyers, doctors, dentists, engineers. And I thought I'd be an architect because I really was fascinated with the whole concept of building. And uh, I took a mechanical drawing cl class in my sophomore year in high school and I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't have that fire in the belly that you need in order to pursue your passion. And I just didn't have it. And I said, I better try something else. And, uh, and then um, I said, social studies teacher in the New York City public schools would be a very noble thing to do. And remember, this is the early 1960s, mid 1960s. And uh, I went to college in 1964, graduated in, the, in that tumultuous year of 1968, mm -hmm. President Johnson, uh, uh, decided not to run for re-election. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated a few de days later. Uh, Senator Bobby Kennedy, who entered the uh, Democratic primary, was assassinated two months later. Uh, I graduated from college in June of 68. My wife still had a year to go. My, my fiance had a year to go. We got married in August 68. We were on our honeymoon when all hell broke loose and the Democratic Convention with all the riots that are famous now uh, with uh, the police and, and the anti-war demonstrators uh, uh, confronting themselves in the streets of Chicago. And it was just a tumultuous, tumultuous uh, year. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I started teaching in the city public schools. And what hit me the first uh, time I got to school in September 1968, a teacher strike a big contentious issue of decentralization versus centralization. And the, yeah, it was, you can read about it. It was really contentious. And so uh, the strike lasted till early November. For, so for two months, I didn't have any income. My wife wasn't working. And so uh, our parents helped us a bit. I, I think I, I got a part-time job, uh, the job that I had over the summer. 
And um, it was very, very difficult to say the least. And uh, so I, I'd like to ask, because like right now, centralization is is like the enemy. I mean, that's the cause yes. of so much. At the time, as a young, very young, just graduated professor, uh, now on strike, um, which side did you side with at that time? Well, it was interesting. I mean, obviously, you want more parent involvement in their kids' education. The mm -hmm. teachers' union had this notion that the parents would have too much power at these local school boards to affect uh, teachers' careers. And that was the big issue that was involved there. And so they finally settled it, and uh, we went our, on our merry way in teaching. Uh, but still, it was a very difficult year as a new teacher uh, mm -hmm. to uh because the kids, uh, it was an inner city school. It's the uh, was one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. In fact, Jimmy Carter campaigned in that district in 1976. So, to, so did Ronald Reagan. It, uh, the, the area was made famous by that movie that Paul Newman was in, Fort Apache. It was mm -hmm. a high crime area. It was a very difficult place to uh, to uh, teach, to say the least. And yeah. then uh, because well, I was a social but you yeah. you made it. I'm sorry to interrupt. This is just so fascinating. You you made a comment something about this, the teachers and the parents. The the parents were having too much say, or the well, that's what that's what the teachers union was afraid of. With under decentralization that was, I think, passed by either the New, uh, New York Legislature or the Board of Education, that there would be a lot of uh, in, uh, uh, input from parents in terms of. Uh, maybe pr promotion, maybe tenure. Uh, and so this was the big issue. And so um, they okay. finally settled, thank, they, thank goodness. And uh, it's again, still a huge I'm all in favor though. of teaching. What, excuse me? It, well, it's, it's kind of a big issue now, not for the specific things you just named, but right now parents are feeling increasingly not included in, yep. in the control and the dynamic of their child's in, um, education. So it's interesting. You're talking about 1968 yeah. where this tension already existed. So that's, well, that's what fascinates me. Yeah. Well, that's why I've concluded as a, as a longtime libertarian after, uh, which I became in the early 1970s after reading the literature about how to organize society for the best possible outcome, whether it's education, housing, transportation, uh, could just go down the list. And I concluded that we really have to separate uh, education from the government because once you have government involved in education, it's automatically politicized. And whoever mm -hmm. has the power will make the decisions that some parents, maybe even a majority of parents don't like. And we're seeing this all over the country with the yes. curriculum. And so this is why if you really believe in school choice, you have to separate education from uh, government and allow parents to decide, should I homeschool my kids? Should I form a school consortium in my neighborhood and bring parents and teachers together and we can pay them uh, like we pay for other services for our kids? And I think that's the model that we should be pursuing rather than trying to capture the, the hearts and minds of the school board that's gonna make decisions regarding curriculum, drag shows, I mean, just go down the list, transgender bathrooms. These are political issues that can never be resolved through, through the process we have today because you're never going to satisfy everybody. And when people have their own money and vote with their own dollars, they can decide which school uh, will provide them, provide their kids with the best education that the parents want for their kids, not what mm -hmm. the bureaucrats and the, and the politicians want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, that makes sense. So what yeah. happened 
after a couple of years in New York City schools, um, Bernadette, I decided this was not going to be my career. I, I just felt there was no intellectual stimulation. And that's what I wanted as a teacher is to be engaged with the students. And, and uh, since there was an excess of social studies teachers, I was asked to teach mathematics because I had a good math background from the Bronx High School of Science. And so I taught math for three years. But after my second year, uh, I decided that I really want to get a PhD in geography so I could teach at the college level. And in the interim, I got a master's in social studies education. And in 1972, I uh, was accepted uh, and uh, to get a PhD program, accepted in the PhD program at Rutgers. So I spent uh, several years as a full-time graduate student and I almost became the last person drafted in America because I was eligible, eligible for the draft until December 19. Uh, December 1972, and I turned 26. And a month later, Nixon ended the draft in America. We went to an all-volunteer army. But I went to a pre-induction physical in early December, and I could have been the last person drafted wow. in America. <laughs> so that's a little footnote to my uh, experience with the, with the possible uh, draft uh, when Vietnam was winding down. Uh, I mean, we had 500,000 troops in 1968, and Nixon came in and said he had a plan to uh, end the war, which, of course, he didn't. And uh, it just dragged on and on until we left in a hurry in April 1975 when the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong took over the South. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. So uh, I got my Ph.D. at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. And what I what I did in my Ph.D. is I wrote about inflation because this is the period of the first great inflation in the postwar period where we had double digit inflation in 1973 and 74. And I put together a topic on how. New money, which is the cause of inflation, spreads through the economy and affects local prices and production and what have you. And that was the essence of my dissertation. And, and it came about because I read uh, Murray Rothbard, the great economist and libertarian theorist, his uh, economic treatise, Man, Economy and State. And in the chapter on money and banking, he talks about how money diffuses through the economy and uh, has all sorts of impacts. And I said, aha, diffusion is a part of the literature in just about every discipline, the diffusion of ideas, the diffusion of products, and now we have the diffusion of money. So I mm -hmm. ran with that topic and um, uh, a University of Chicago professor heard about the uh, dissertation and I, uh, I sent it to him, he read it and he sent me a, a wonderful uh, complimentary note that I broke theoretical ground in the whole area of the economic geography of inflation. And so at what stage of your journey here did your curious eye turn toward the medical industry, the health systems, and begin to see the problems there? Uh, uh, when we moved from the Bronx, I'm sorry, from lower Manhattan to the Bronx in 1953, we moved into the apartment of my father's cousin who left New York City because she had bad asthma and moved to uh, Denver, Colorado. And she became very involved in supplementation and vitamins and the whole nine yards. And she told us about it. And I didn't pay much attention to it. And then when I was teaching, uh, a colleague of mine's brother-in-law uh, was a gym teacher. And he was really big into supplements. So we started taking supplements to boost our immune system and to have optimal health. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading Prevention Magazine and other things that I can get my hand on in, in the pre-internet days and speak to people about what should I take, vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, uh, multivitamin uh, and other things, not a whole bunch of them. And then uh, and then as time went on, uh, my mother had breast cancer in 1987, I think it was, uh, around there. And then my father had colon cancer in the 1990s. 
uh, no, I'm sorry, in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s. And, um, and I realized that uh, they weren't having the proper nutrition, the proper uh, vitam vitamins and so on and so forth. And so I started reading more about it. And as the internet came about in, in the mid-90s, we were able to access things that I didn't have access to before. And then a friend of mine, longtime friend of mine, became a naturopath about 20 some odd years ago and um, just a very smart brilliant guy who lectures in medical schools about nutrition and in uh, may of 2020 a couple of months after uh, the COVID lockdowns i hosted a webinar uh, of uh, medical people members of the state legislature from both sides of the aisle a couple of financial people and we talked about the impact of covid and he gave a great presentation on the supplements you should take in order to build up your immune system, strengthen your respiratory tract. And we've been taking it ever since. And so, um, as they say, knock on wood, um, we've been in, in pretty good health because of all the supplements he recommended, which uh, other naturopaths and other functional medicine doctors have been uh, recommending to their uh, patients in mm -hmm. order to avoid... Um, the the, the, vac the so-called vaccine, uh, we mm -hmm. didn't take it. I don't mind telling people publicly I didn't take oh, it. Oh, good. Um, again, uh, given what I learned during this whole period, I said, this sounds like a very bad flu. And I've only had one flu shot in my whole life. And, we, and my wife and I both came down with the flu in uh, the, the winter of 1977-78 when we first moved to New Jersey. And we both were very sick. So we went to our doctor, who was my pediatrician. But as we got older, he took on a few adult patients. And so we drove uh, 45 minutes to his office because we lived in central Jersey at the time. He was in northern New Jersey. And um, and uh, we had the bad flu. And I think I got had a flu shot somewhere in the 90s, I think. I never got a flu shot. Uh, never had the flu since then. And um, it's, I think, the vitamin C, the vitamin D, uh, all the things that uh, I've learned will build your immune system and uh, strengthen your uh, respiratory tract. And, um, mm -hmm. and so that's why uh, when people ask me, uh, oh, have you taken the vaccine? I don't, I don't mind telling them I didn't because I don't think it's necessary. We know that uh, COVID really uh, attacked people who are elderly with comorbidities. That's what the evidence suggests. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the medical profession, unfortunately, uh, have now become subservient to the CDC and the federal government rather than doing their own due diligence to see whether these uh, shots are needed and the boosters. And uh, there are people who have had two shots, five boosters. I mean, uh, and to me, that's just over the top because if you keep yourself in optimal health, you will avoid getting sick, or if you do get sick, it'll be a mild case of uh, a cold or, or the flu mm -hmm. or anything like that. And so um, uh, teaching in, at the college level, I mean, you, you're with students 15 weeks a year in a closed building with no open windows. And the only time I ever got sick, and I really didn't get sick much, was at the end of the semester where you spend 15 weeks in a closed building where kids are coughing and sneezing in the hallway in your classroom, and eventually mm -hmm. it you, but it's an, a mild case. It's nothing where it was debilitating, where I had to be off for a week or two weeks or anything like that. But um, yeah, it it can get very dicey if you don't take care of yourself. And to me, right. that is the essence of healthcare: taking care of yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's where it needs to start. But unfortunately, there's no money in it 
for the right. whole medical industry to keep people healthy, doing things like getting adequate sunshine and D and exercise and sleep, which we talked about in the health hour with Dr. Paul Merrick just before this hour. And um, so, but it, but what we've realized and what I especially wanted to talk to you about is this, the, it's called the misaligned incentive. So you yes. are teaching a class at um, Dr. James Lyons Weiler's online university, IPAC-EDU, and you're going to be talking about misaligned incentives um, a little bit that you um, you touched on there. It's like the, the you said something about, you know, the doctors are pretty much just being controlled. And um, so kind of take us through um, the misaligned incentives, and then let's make sure we leave time to to for your ideas about solutions to realign them. Sure. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because I really want to get to the heart of the matter of why in 2023 the American people are spending more than four trillion dollars a year on so-called health care, and the outcomes are getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And that is just uh, an unconscionable situation where we're spending twice as much as any other country in the world and, we, and life expectancy is going down and uh, obesity levels are going up and we know what obesity uh, leads to in terms of diabetes, stroke, heart disease, cancer, so on and so forth. And the problem we have in this country as I see it is that there's an old saying, uh, war is too important to be left to generals. That's why we have civilian command of the military in the United States. I would just uh, add, a, uh, add something to that, that health care is too important to be left to bureaucrats and government officials. Uh, and that's, that's I think, the wh where I'm coming from when it comes to this issue of health care. And the other thing is, there's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes the government to get involved in health care in Article 1, mm -hmm. Section 8. <laughs> There's nothing there. So therefore, from my perspective, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, although they're embedded in our culture, we'll talk about the solutions uh, in a little while, but that's one of the problems. And then the other thing that happened is because of World War II, the law of unintended consequences kicked in and employer-based insurance became the paradigm of how uh, individuals and families get their medical care by having the employer pay for their insurance costs, which of course, and there's another thing that I've said that no one else has said, we are overinsured in America. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we have to realize also that the, we don't need medical insurance to go to the doctor to get us to uh, have him look at our throat because we may have a strep throat or a sore throat or anything like that. Those are things we should be paying out of pocket. Like my parents did in the 1950s when they took me to the doctor, they paid $5, no copay, no deductible. If I needed an antibiotic, we'd get a prescription, we'd go to the local pharmacy, no copay, no um, uh, deductible, and we'd get a prescription. And that would be that. And then when mm -hmm. my father needed a major operation in 1961, he was a blue collar worker. Um, he had a major operation in Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. I remember it vividly because I took the train down to see him and he was recuperating there. Then he spent, I think, I don't know, two, three weeks at home recuperating. And uh, as far as I can remember, there was no uh, uh, angst in the family that the bills were going to overwhelm the uh, family's finances. And so I think Blue Cross Blue Shield took care of most of the op uh, the, the cost. Remember, this is before Medicare and Medicaid. So what also has happened, why we're in the situation we're in, is that we've had Medicare and Medicaid, which increased the demand for medical services. We've had general inflation since 1965. Prices are up roughly eightfold in general. And the 
and the fastest growing component of the CPI since the mid 60s has been medical care. So mm -hmm. there is a relationship between government intervention, inflation, and the rise in medical care costs. So that's mm -hmm. the that's the uh, framework in which we're working in. So what are the disincent uh, the incentives, the disincentives? I like to explain to my students when I was teaching corporate finance, I could change their behavior in an instant. If I said to them, assuming they're 21 years old, I was teaching in northern New Jersey, and guess what? We have a lot of uh, casinos in Atlantic City. I said, I could change your behavior where you would, where you would be at the casinos 24-7 or virtually 24-7. If I said to you, if you go to <clears throat> gamble in, Las, in uh, Atlantic City and you win, you keep the money. But if you lose, I would make up your losses. So what's your incentive in life? To gamble because there's no cost to you. <laughs> yeah. the, time, the time that you would uh, spend in, in Atlantic City. And I would yeah. even pay for your, for your hospital, uh, not hospital, your, your hotel stay there. So depending on what the incentives are, it'll have a huge impact on people's behavior. And we've mm -hmm. seen this over and over again uh, in every sector of the economy. So what, how does it pertain to healthcare? Well, unfortunately, uh, the doctor-patient relationship, which is what I grew up with in the 1950s and 60s, has been basically replaced by the, the, the medical industrial government complex where the patient is an afterthought of providing medical care because the doctors have to fill out the forms for Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance companies. So they have an incentive to see you as quickly as possible to get as many patients in and out of their office as much as possible. And they have to make sure that, they're, that they don't get fined uh, for filling out the forms incorrectly. So what do you do? You have a whole bunch of people in the doctor's office who don't provide any medical care. All they have to do, all they do is make sure that the doctor is compliant with the rules and regulations of the insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid. So there's a huge incentive for the doctors to make sure they hire the right people, which costs them money, so mm -hmm. that they will stay out of legal trouble uh, and or get fined from um, from the powers that be. So you can see the whole structure is out of whack because the doctor-patient yeah. relationship has been put on the back burner. So mm -hmm. instead of doctors focusing in on, on the patient, they, they one of the things they have to do is to be compliant. So that's a real problem in the medical uh, field to say the least. So, uh, so the other thing is one way we know of how consumers determine what's good for them is that they have a price. And they can judge, should I buy product A or product B or service A or service B? In other words, mm -hmm. th there should be transparency in, in how much you're paying for a particular service. We can go online and find out what we will pay for our phone ser uh, cell service, what we'll pay for our cable service, what we will pay for our automobile service, because those uh, prices are listed somewhere either online or at the, dealers, um, uh, at the dealer uh, uh, mm -hmm. office. So one of the great problems we have in medical care is people don't know what it costs, what the prices are. Mm -hmm. And so the incentive is basically to keep the patients in the dark because all they're doing is paying their copay if, if they have insurance uh, from their employer. And mm -hmm. price is not a problem for them because they're paying a copay. And so theoretically, I guess you can go to the doctor every week or so and and uh, say, my back hurts, my knee hurts, uh, this hurts and that hurts. And all you have to do is pay $15 copay. So we need to have a structure in place where there are incentives for people to use the medical care system for needs that they have 
And I have a general rule for my own personal health. If I have a cough and it doesn't go away in three days, I'm going to go see the doctor because a cough usually goes away in three to four days or something like that. Or if I have a pain somewhere and it doesn't go away in three or four days, using some of the teas that I have, the herbal teas, some of the other supplements that I have, if, if something doesn't, uh, doesn't heal by itself, and we know the body has a great uh, capacity to heal itself with adequate sleep, another important concept in optimal yeah. health. Make sure you have adequate sleep because uh, from what I read recently, your brain will, will heal itself overnight. It will take away a lot, a lot of the waste that's in there. And uh, it's very important that we get adequate sleep. And we know youngsters are not getting enough sleep. No. And that's why they'll be asleep in school. They, they won't be at their optimal uh, alertness in school. And mm -hmm. uh, if, they're, if they're doing uh, after school work or after school uh, sports plus uh, school, uh, school uh, they get run down very easily. So mm -hmm. you have, an, have another major issue. So there are so many issues that, that need to be addressed. And that's why I wrote the book, The Finance of Healthcare. And um, I have the, and it's subtitled Wellness and Innovative Approaches to Employee Medical Insurance. And Is that available at bookstores everywhere? Well, it's on Amazon. So you can get okay. that, my other book on Amazon on how to create okay. a universal medical care system, which is more on the public policy arena. But okay. going through all the uh, information that's out there, we should be paying as a nation, not $4 trillion here on medical care, but about $2 trillion. And we can do that, I think, with the solutions that I've talked about uh, on, on podcasts, on radio, TV, and I've written about them on, on Substack on, on, uh, in my books, is that we mm -hmm. need to restore the doctor-patient relationship and not insure for ordinary expenses. And we have a wonderful vehicle. It's called the health savings account that everyone mm. should have access to. You put the money in without paying taxes. The money grows tax-free and you take it out tax-free. Mm -hmm. This would be a vehicle that the government should say to everyone, you know what? We believe you should have the greatest choices available to you in medical care. And this vehicle will allow you to choose your doctor, pay the doctor out of your pocket through this health savings account, take get the blood test that you need, and then get yourself a catastrophic insurance policy. So God forbid you need a, a major operation. You can pay mm -hmm. for it. Uh, with the uh, catastrophic policy at plus whatever you have in the health savings account. Uh, and the other thing I uh, uncovered, Bernadette, and you, you'll appreciate this as so will the listeners. I, uh, when I wrote my first book on medical care, I uh, interviewed uh, several doctors. One of them was um, a direct primary care doctor here in Southwest Florida, where I'm living. And um, for, for those of you that are not familiar with direct primary care, you pay a doctor a monthly fee for you or, and or your family, and you have access to the doctor virtually 24-7. You make an appointment. There's no waiting in the waiting room because the doctors, instead of having 2,000 patients in a typical practice, they'll have maybe six to 800 patients. So the, the patient's visits will be spread out over the course of the, the year, or the month, the week, the day. So there's really no waiting time in, in the office. So she had a patient, no medical insurance, and he needed an, an operation. I forgot if it was, it was probably a knee operation. The local hospital quoted him $20,000 uh, fee for the operation. He, the patient went to, doc, to the doctor and said, the hospital quoted me $20,000. She said, you got to call this surgery center of Oklahoma in Tulsa because mm -hmm. they do surgery, high quality surgery for cash only. 
He called up the, the surgery center. The whole shebang, the operation, the anesthesia, the travel to uh, Tulsa, the state, the hotel, whatever, $5,000. 75% discount from what the hospital was charging. There are ways of reducing MRI costs and other uh, expensive tests and mm -hmm. procedures that are done in hospitals by 50 to 75% or more. And uh, the, the Stories that you hear from HR personnel and uh, other business uh, executives and doctors who know how the system works, that uh, the, the hospitals are charging an enormous amount of money. And if, you're a, if you have an insurance, of course, it gets billed through the insurance company. And they, of course, then pass on to the premiums, to the, to the, uh, to the uh, employer. So mm -hmm. you have these perverse incentives where everyone's making money and it's cost a lot of money and the, the patient is really out of the equation. So, so the empl employers for, again, what they're doing is self-insuring, which is a good way of uh, trying to reduce their costs and still provide uh, uh, good medical care to their employees. But the problem is, is that we, do, we don't need insurance for all these little things that we see the doctor for. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the cost saving could be absolutely enormous because doctors mm -hmm. can then reduce the cost of uh, labor in their office. They don't need all these uh, uh, insurance uh, people to file claims for them. And uh, the patient goes in. Like I remember in the 1950s, going to the doctor, he had one nurse work with him. And uh, your parents would take you there. You sit for a few minutes. The doctor would see you. He would see you for 15, 20, 30, 25 minutes, whatever it would take to diagnose you properly. And that was it. Then you paid the $5 and you go home. And today, mm -hmm. you've got to go and wait an hour, maybe sometimes. And here's the sad reality of what's happening today, Bernadette, which really explains why we have a problem in medical care. In every profession, people, the, the professionals want what? Customers, don't they? That's how they make money and provide a good service to the public. We moved to, uh, to West, Southwest Florida uh, two and a half years ago, and there are doctors that, who, not, who are no longer taking new patients on. That's unheard of. In which profession do you turn back customers, which is what a patient is? Patient is a customer, a customer mm -hmm. who needs medical care. This is unheard of. This is how bizarre it is. That's like going to the cable company and they say, we, I want cable service. No, we have too many customers. We can't give you cable service. Or you go to your cell phone company and you say, I, I want um, uh, a, a service. They say, no, we're sorry. We, we have too many customers. Or you go to the auto dealer and, and say, I need my car fixed. They say, no, we have too many customers. That's absurd. People would laugh at that. But yet we have it in the medical profession. And uh, people are obviously tolerating it. And the sad reality is people are, uh, are delaying treatment. They're delaying uh, uh, diagnoses at, at, at doctor's offices. And I, I've been collecting articles from the, the Wall Street Journal and other publications of what's happening to the medical profession. And it's a sad state of affairs where people are cutting back on uh, medical care if they don't have insurance. And um, mm -hmm. they're delaying uh, getting treated. They're cutting back on medicine that uh, they was prescribed. Instead of taking one full dose, they may be taking a half a dose, which of course is is not good medical practice. And uh, people are running up huge debt because uh, they uh, they don't have insurance. So mm -hmm. if we put the cost down by restructuring the whole system, 
I believe we could have universal medical care, and I explained that in my first book on uh, how we have, can have universal medical care without the government involvement. It would be the individual payer rather than the government payer. The individual payer, is that the individual person? Yes. Not family. tied to, right. So it, it's a whole new way of thinking about it. And I, I yes. really love this. And, you know, another topic we I had touched on is like personal responsibility. Yep. So in this nation, we kind of got away from being personally responsible for doing everything because you've got insurance for this and insurance for that. Mm -hmm. You've got the government taking care of everything. Government kind of stepping in and trying to be the role of your, your mother, your father, and, you know, and family, you know, about what they're trying to put out there. But if each of us learns from a young age that you need to take personal responsibility for your health, you need to eat right, do your exercise, take care of the small expenses. I love the day, the idea of everybody having a um, what's that called? Your your own savings account from medical savings account? Health savings account, they call it now. Health. I HSA. wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want any government oversight because I want it, I don't want anybody saying, no, that therapy, we won't let you spend your money on. So I don't right. know what if what strings attached there are in there. But if if people if that just became uh, a cultural habit. Yep. that you set up health savings accounts rather than paying the insurance company for your family a thousand dollars a month you gift yourself you save yourself you bank yourself to right. um a certain amount every month so that you can pay for the little things and then you've got catastrophic insurance coverage from an insurance company for for something very major that's going on um I love I love that idea. And I think some people right now are making it happen because they are just doing it. They're getting well, themselves a, a savings account and they're going to doctors like yours that where. And I, I spoke to some um, here in Tennessee where I am. And the really cool thing is these doctors who set up the private practice where you pay them a regular fee, whether you see them or not is they have an incentive to keep you healthy because sure. the fewer times their patients see them, the more money they really make. And so they are incentivized to, to provide you with the essentials of health so that you don't have to see them all the time. It, it's the right incentive, incentivizing health instead of incentivizing sickness and return visits. Well, that. That's why uh, in doing the research for my uh, book on uh, the finance of healthcare, I came across an organization called Forward. Their website is Go Forward. And it was started by um, a young physician whose father was an emergency room physician in the Bronx who saw people were coming to the ER room and they're just waiting endlessly to get uh, treated. And when he was five years old, he decided to become a doctor. And uh, it's just a wonderful story of how he created this uh, a direct primary care uh, operation called Forward, and they're in se several major big cities around the country. And this could be mm -hmm. replicated all across America. And uh, he said, "What America has, what America, American healthcare has become, it's become uh, it's sick care rather than healthcare, because yeah. he said doctors should be helping people get well and stay well, and not relying on pharmaceuticals which just treat the symptoms as opposed to the underlying causes, which could be a vitamin D deficiency, a C deficiency, a magnesium deficiency, a zinc deficiency, and uh, eating processed foods. There's a big, a uh, huge article in the world." <laughs> This week about do you know do you know why i'm laughing professor sabrin 
because you are echoing absolutely everything that Dr. Paul Merrick said in the health hour just before this program. I, I think this is fabulous. This is, I love this. I want everybody to know this information. This well, is very, <laughs> well, that's why, that's why my, when my friend decided to become a naturopath after a successful career in business, he studied endlessly and, um, he has uh, a traditional doctors shadowing him in his office in uh, Clifton, New Jersey, and uh, cool. he he works he works with doctors, uh, cardiologists, oncologists, and uh, what uh, Glenn does, uh, he says uh, he's he pr he prides himself on reading blood tests to see exactly what's wrong with the patient, and then adjusts their diet uh, and if necessary, and uh, and recommends supplements so they can use a naturopathic approach to optimal health. And uh, getting back to what you said about personal responsibility, I have this, yeah. uh, this little anecdote in my book. He said uh, a young man came to him who weighed 345 pounds. He was a former college football player who wanted to lose weight. So for, the first thing Glenn did was to uh, order blood tests to see what was wrong. And apparently they were okay, even though he weighed 345 pounds. I don't know how tall he was. But if he was six foot six at three forty five, it's not too bad. But still, it's a lot of weight, and he wanted to lose weight. So um, Glenn recommended some things to him, and never saw him again. Uh, so I don't know uh, if uh, so <laughs> if, he, if he followed his protocol or whatever. But um, uh, uh, someone who I met uh, years ago at a at a function where I was speaking, um, she came down with breast cancer, and she uh, uh, and she got treated. And I said, you, you may want to think of seeing a naturopath. And she saw uh, Glenn and she loved the, the way he approached her health issues. And mm -hmm. um, this is what I personally like to do is to let people know there are alternatives to what, what is happening in the medical field, that yeah. you can get better health in every aspect of your health from head right. to toe. And I've reached the age where I have specialists from head to toe because that's <laughs> you, once you reach a certain age, Bernard, that uh, yeah. you really well, have you, to make. You, have you to really look make fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you. I, so. You're doing something right, sir, because I like you keep I'm looking at like when you arrived in the United States in office. So I'm like putting you in your 70s and it's like you do not look like you're in your Well, 70s. I've got a big birthday next month. So it's uh, yeah. next, next month is the double seven. Really? You're going to be 77? Yes. Are you kidding me? Well, yeah. wow. Keep it up. You're doing, you're doing fantastic. So um, I really, I'm glad to hear that. Now you're, um, the course that you're teaching and, and then maybe your book as well. I'm wondering, you're, tu you're touching on systematic, um, the ways in which the whole medical system no longer serves the patient. And it's kind right. of this perverse, but not necessarily um, sort of nefarious and corrupt, although that corruption is there. I'm just wondering, do you touch on in your book um, and in the course you're going to be teaching that corruption angle, like the the CDC and the FDA, yeah. you know, the lies coming down, incentivized, like the remdesivir in the hospitals that was incentivized by yeah. HHS that went right. to the hospitals and the doctors were told to do this. Um, it when those things came, when we already had the framework that you discussed, a framework that supports sick care, it probably was easy for the corruption to take hold because of this failed system. Well, th this is why government intervention in medical care has been such a disaster for the American people, because mm. uh, there's 
we know that the hospitals were reimbursed very heavily for COVID patients. And uh, you hear horror stories where people went into yeah. the ER, they were diagnosed with COVID and they were told to go home. They weren't treated and they came back and they had it, they were intubated, uh, which of course mm -hmm. is not the great thing to do from what I understand. And so no, worst thing that done. needlessly from what I gather and um, yes. uh, the, the full story will, will, will be coming out in drips and drabs, but uh, mm -hmm. everything I've read from, uh, from people who uh, investigated this very thoroughly uh, realized that the hospitals had an incentive to, uh, to diagnose everyone with COVID, even though they may, yes. uh, the COVID test would, may have not been accurate because we know there are a lot of false positives in COVID testing. Right. So, and uh, we, we know that depending on the state you were in, it was odd that it depended on the state you were in, but yeah. um, there were incentives for the minute a patient walked in the door and got tested was, was one bonus, was one incentive amount all the way through, you know, everything. And it could add up. And this is so like astounding to me, two or $300,000 extra per patient yeah, that yeah. the government put on top of the bill. I mean, it would, the numbers are so staggering. And then how much doctors were getting and, and the whole thing, I mean, I don't understand how our government had, well, we don't have that much money, but the numbers are just mind boggling into the trillions. It seems like they must, we know hundreds of billions that they spent incentivizing wrong care. Um, and, but I want to spend the last few minutes here with you talking about like as individuals, uh, professors begin to show everybody what's wrong and people begin to fix the giant structure, empower individual listeners right now. What can you do in your life so that you can yeah. escape the sick care system and set up your own health care system? Well, if you're self-employed, I guess, um, again, I don't have the information right in front of me, but I think you can open up your own HSA, health savings account, if you're an okay. entrepreneur and you're, and you're working for yourself. Mm -hmm. This is a great vehicle to uh, build up uh, savings for healthcare needs and get a catastrophic insurance. The average cost of a, a employee-based medical uh, insurance is now $24,000 a year. That's an incredible amount of money. And of course, mm -hmm. employees are now paying a, a good portion of that, $6,000 or more, uh, depending upon your employer. So, mm -hmm. uh, so not only are we paying more as an employee, but the cost is, is, is skyrocketing. And again, the Wall Street Journal has been on top of this. Uh, costs are going up, even though uh, healthcare inflation has sort of moderated the last couple of years. It's starting to go up again because the population is aging. People are sicker because of COVID, mm -hmm. not because of COVID, because the COVID regulations, people stayed at home. So alcoholism increased, obesity increased during COVID, loneliness increased, a lot of mental health issues came about because of COVID. Um, mm -hmm. So co the COVID, the lockdowns did irreparable. It, everything harm. that you've, yeah, everything you've named didn't happen COVID didn't do it. The co the response to COVID, you've yep. named all the, re the response that the governments around the world were warned by experts, don't do that. It will cause A, B, and C. And you know, in Washington state where I was living when COVID first hit, um, we found uh, through public records requests, we found documentation that showed the governor and public and the department of health actually did these scenarios. They they looked at if we did ABC, if we lock down, what will happen? 
and they predicted, you know, depression, suicidality, um, you know, citizen unrest, all of these negative things they predicted. They did it anyway. They predicted they would happen. And then they had a column for like solutions. And I remember one of them was let's have a hotline for people who are depressed. What? You're going to you're going to take away their livelihood, lock them in their homes, make their health health worse. But by gum, they can call this 1-800 number to say, I'm sad. No, I mean, it was just ridiculous. They knew they were going to cause harms and they caused harms. And I forgot why I even started talking about this. What was my point? Oh, you named that all of our health decreased. And and it it was because of the response. So we have to make sure that never happens um, again. Well, this but. is why this is, this is why doctors have to really unburden themselves with with the notion that the CDC knows best. I mean, yes. th- I think one of the, Trump's greatest error was when Fauci came to him and said, uh, "So many people are going to die because of COVID." He should have said to uh, to him, "I need a second and third opinion." Uh, let's talk it. about some solutions. I mean, what I've what I've indicated in in uh, many of my writings is that we need to free up resources from the public so they can do what they do best, which is decide for themselves, what's the best course of action for my healthcare? And the HSA is a perfect vehicle for that, especially for young people. Young people, I think, are more entrepreneurial. They're more independent. I hope they're more independent. At least the students that I taught at Brown College over the years, uh, they in the business school, they had an independent streak. And uh, create that culture of personal responsibility. And I think if we do that, that is sorely missing in this country. Because if you look at the uh, at the world before Medicare and Medicaid, or even before World War II, even before the Great Depression, um, you know, rugged individualism, to use that overused term, was was part of American culture. People felt it's me, my family, and the community that are going to solve these problems. Yes, and we've gone away from that to this big government uh, idealization that the, the church of big government is where we should be praying because they're, after all, got all these resources that we need in order to take care of ourselves. But we can take care of ourselves because the government doesn't have any more money than it can extract from the public. That's what right. taxation is all about, <laughs> it, yeah. what they can borrow from, yeah. from the public and from overseas, which is drying up, by the way. Yeah. So that's why that's why we're we're going to have a financial crisis down the road. That's a topic for another day. Yeah. But uh, but the point is, government cannot solve your problem. I mean, I think Reagan said it best in the 1980 campaign. I want the government to get off your backs. Well, it hasn't gotten off of off our backs in 43 years since he was elected, and okay. so we need to instill that culture that your life is your own. Ever since when I was growing up, one thing I learned: my father went to work. He brought home a paycheck. He took care of his family. We didn't never on welfare. He lost his job. He became a New York City cab driver. He eventually bought his own cab, and he uh, and he uh, made a living for for mm-hmm. us. That's what people youngsters should learn from their parents: go to school, get educated, do something that you feel passionate about, and become a financially independent adult. That's the that. culture of what America should be all about. And that's what I learned as an immigrant in the 1950s and 60s is that my marching orders when we moved to, to the Bronx was go to school, get an education and do something that you want to uh, have a career in. And, and that's what I did. So uh, I, I love it. 
say I'm grateful for all the help that people gave me along the way. And mm -hmm. I had a 35 year career teaching finance. Mm -hmm. And now on my Substack column, I'm trying to bring solutions to the American people in healthcare, yeah. housing, education. Excellent. This is a great way to wind up. We're down to almost like the last minute. So hold up your book if you've got it. So people see that book jacket and then tell them the address of your um, substack. That is Murray Sabrin, S-A-B-R-I-N dot substack dot com. And his book is The Finance of Healthcare. Thank you for that, sir. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show, hearing about your life journey that brought you here to help us with this mess that we're in. And I love that everybody's individually empowered at this moment right now to make needed changes to improve their health and, and their own little healthcare system. So um, you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, sir, coming up. You, you too, uh, Bernadette. And uh, thank you for the invite and uh, sharing my thoughts with uh, your, your audience. Oh, it's it's just been a pleasure. Oh, and let's not forget IPAC. That's IPAK-EDU.org. You can go check out. You're going to be begin teaching um, in January, I believe. Yes, um, yes. The, the courses are in, in January. So look them up and look for his courses. You've been listening to the Liberty Hour on Inform Life Radio, 1150 AM KKNW. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. I'm thankful for you and this great community. We'll see you next week. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.